Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. So as I mentioned, we are coming to the end of what has been, to me, I think, an incredible, very significant two months in the life of our church. We're bringing our series, All of Jesus for Everyone, to a close. And in this series, we've explored specifically who we are, the, how we see the world, and the world we long to see. And we've discovered more clearly the expressions of what we believe rooted in Scripture and the values that we hold to in response to those beliefs. And last week, we began to put the finishing touches on things when we started talking about how all of this actually interacts with the world. It's great to believe things and know things and have conviction about things, but how does this begin to interact with the world? And Mark Nelson began to preach on what we've been calling our ethic our ethic, how we interact with the world. And we named that ethic that we started talking about last week, we get in order to give. We get in order to give. That's one aspect of our ethic that says this family is sacrificially generous because God is so faithfully abundant. We're sacrificially generous because God is so faithfully abundant. And that's the first sort of flavor That we have to the world. We're sacrificially generous. We get in order to give. Now the point of an ethic is that it permeates everything that we do. Throughout this series, we have preached a lot on the what's and the who's we believe and hold to in this. But the ethic speaks much more to the how it's all worked out. The how of interaction. The how of our intersection with the world. And we have one more aspect of our ethic to discuss today, to, to, to speak on today as we bring this series to a close. But if you've been with us in the past weeks, you've noticed that what we've kind of done from the start is review everything that we've preached right at the top and then sort of add the next piece and then preach on that. And that's fine, but that's, I kind of want to go in reverse of that today. Rather than review everything and just give the next component, I want to introduce this next ethic and then go back through and see how it permeates everything that we've already preached. And hopefully, my prayer, my hope is that you probably won't even need me to preach it. You'll see it so clearly. I'm still going to preach it. Don't get your hopes up. But you probably won't even need me to. You'll see it. So we'll be reminding ourselves of what we've already more deeply admitted about ourselves, and we'll use this ethic to sort of finalize the picture. So whether you're joining us for the first time today or you've been with us all 10 weeks, hopefully we'll walk away today with this sort of rounded out, painted picture of who we are. So as we approach this ethic today, I have a question. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life, whether you knew it then or not, when one season was very clearly ending and at the same exact time, one season was very clearly starting? And they were intersecting right at the moment. Have you ever experienced a season of simultaneous, or a moment of simultaneous end and simultaneous beginning? That moment seems to straddle two seasons, and it carries a lot of significance because of what has occurred, but also because of what's coming. And because of that dual significance, the the weight, the gravity of this kind of moment is really unique. It's precious. It's, It's only right there. It's not just a context for something, it's a heightened context. And what we choose to to say, how we choose to act in in these kinds of moments usually gets distilled pretty quickly down to only what is crucial, only what is essential, only what is needed, because that's really only all we have time for. It's a heightened moment. So 
I was thinking about this in my life because I've asked you to think about it in your life. And the thing that comes to my mind right away is the birth of our kids, especially the birth of my oldest child when non-parenthood was ending and parenthood was beginning. And, and I'm having all these existential thoughts about this season that's ending and this season that's beginning right in the moment. I was trying to share them with Jess. She was preoccupied with other things at the moment. Um, <laughs> I've never been a superhero, so I don't know what she was going through, but, but for me, it was such a, a unique and precious and significant heightened moment. Some of you graduated yesterday. It's a significant heightened moment. It's very real, the end of something and the beginning of something new. Some of you are getting married this summer. I'm looking at you, Mel and Hans. You know, John Cox, look at you. Yeah, and Rachel and Joe. And Sean and Emily, and I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble now because I'm not going to remember everybody. But that's going to be a significant moment. When you guys stand and you say, I do, that moment is the end of a season and the beginning of a season right at the same time. Jesus and his disciples experienced this kind of moment as well. They experienced this kind of moment as well. And what Jesus chooses to convey in this moment, I think, carries great significance for us. I think our ears should really perk up to what Jesus is saying. I'm not saying that some of Jesus's words are more important than other of Jesus's words because of when he shared them, but I am saying that in his humanity, it's significant when Jesus chose to say what? When he chose to say what? We find the context that I'm talking about in the book of John, in the Bible, in in the 13th chapter. It's a significant moment for Jesus and the disciples, and the first verse of John chapter 13 describes a little bit of the circumstances for us. And you can follow along uh, in your Bible or it'll be on the screen behind me. John 13 verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So a little bit about this context. Jesus knows something that his disciples don't. Jesus knows that very soon his earthly human ministry is actually going to come to a close. And it's it's going to come to a close both wonderfully and violently. He knows that in a matter of very short time, he will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be crucified, he will resurrect, and subsequently he will ascend into heaven and will not be humanly present on the earth anymore. And a new age of God's kingdom will actually be inaugurated by this. And Jesus has been talking about this for a long time, but he knows that the actual happening of it is soon. It's an age in which God's spirit will inhabit his people. And this group, the disciples, soon to be the apostles, soon to be the church, will actually supernaturally continue all that Acts tells us Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus is aware of the immensity of this moment. This context is immense. What does Jesus choose to do in this moment? What does he choose to do? Well, first off, John 13 tells us that he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. It's this moment where Jesus models for them servant sacrificial leadership. He also begins to speak to them about who will betray him. And he identifies Judas, although the disciples miss it a little bit. And then Jesus does something else. 
he speaks to them about the heightened context moment that they're actually in. He admits it to them. In verse 33, Jesus says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. He's starting to tell them where they are. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's admitted the moment, he's named it, and I got to tell you, the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth stand to carry incredible significance. What would you say in this kind of moment? You know, Chris, where I'm going in a minute, you can't go with me. Therefore, remember what I taught you, never forget me. You know, do what I said or whatever. What is Jesus about to say? He has a chance to emphasize anything, anything that he wants. So what does he say? Let's continue in verse 34. Next words out of Jesus' mouth. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So in this heightened moment, Jesus doesn't emphasize theology. He doesn't emphasize all the ins and outs of ministering in power and whether or not things cease or go on or political persuasions or anything of this. He emphasizes no other worthwhile thing except this, love. And not lovey-dovey love, the as I have loved you love. The love of Jesus, a sacrifice for one another kind of love. In this heightened moment, that's what comes to Jesus' mind. And it comes to Jesus' mind so strongly that he says, this is actually what will differentiate you. That love will be the difference. Love will differentiate you. Love will be the difference. That's actually the last part of our ethic. That's the last component of the ethic that permeates all that we are. Love is the difference. Love is the difference. Now, we've said from the top that none of this, we're not thinking these things up. None of this is our idea. We're getting our conviction of who we are as the church from Scripture, and we're getting our conviction of who we are as this local church from what God has spoken to us. And let me tell you, we did not think up the centrality of love. It's Jesus' idea. And it's the most significant, essential, crucial idea that comes to Jesus' lips right at this heightened moment. And the rest of Scripture only bears witness to the importance that Jesus is placing on it. We could go to any number of places in our Bible and see the love of God poured out to us and therefore the love of us poured out to others heightened identified, emphasized, but we're going to go to probably one of the most significant passages and probably the most familiar, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as you turn there, I want to invite you to unhallmark card your brain about 1 Corinthians 13. Unhallmark your brain for a minute, and let's read this for what it's actually saying, because it's really, really significant. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1, or verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Boy, not I'm really close, I'm like a shade off, and I'm doing super well, I just got to tweak a few things. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And the passage goes on. Many of you know love is patient, love is kind, on and on, describing what love is. Let me tell you, not how love feels. What love is, not how love feels. You, 
you absolutely feel love sometimes, and that is great. But do you always feel patient? Do you always feel kind? No. In love, can you be patient? Can you be kind, etc., etc.? Yes, we can ask God for the blessing of feeling, and that is a worthwhile ask. But let me tell you, the feeling of love will follow the open doorway of our obedience to being in love. And that's good news, because I personally don't want my obedience to be based on whether or not I feel like it. I don't. I want it to be based on what God teaches me about what love is. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what bells and whistles I have. And I'm not being disrespectful to the things that Paul is listing there. In 1 Corinthians, they're amazing things, but they are simply bells and whistles without love. One of the things that I love to do is take my family to the Museum of Science and Industry. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but it's, it's like a, it's awesome. So my son Gideon is, is three, and yes, I know I use my kids a lot in sermon illustrations, but they are literally walking sermon illustrations, so, so sorry, not Sorry. So I, take, I took Gideon to, uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it, they have this massive, authentic, real uh, 1800s locomotive. It's the New York Central Railroad number 999, and it is fully intact, fully restored, fully uh, there for you to go and see. And Gideon is three, so he's at the age where the meaning of life is dinosaurs, Star Wars, and trains. And if Hollywood were to ever figure it out and put a movie together with dinosaurs riding trains in Star Wars, they would just take my money. <laughs> so I'm thinking Gideon is going to love this. And we, we go hustling over there. I've built it up for him. He is ready. And we get to it. And he just starts looking at it. And he's like, this is amazing, Dad. Wow, he's touching everything. And then I'm like, hey, bud, you want to walk around to the other side and go get in the train? I look down, he's not even there anymore. He's already started to run around. And we walk up into the train, and it's, it's totally authentic. And you can touch everything, and, and you can see what it must have been like to stand 15 feet off the ground zooming. This was the first train to ever be clocked at over 100 miles an hour. And you can just imagine what that must have been like. And Gideon goes, Dad, can we drive the train? And I'm like, well, but, you know, see, well, when you preserve things from antiquity, it's not really the point to be able to, yada, yada. And he goes, Dad, can we drive the train? And I'm just like, no, but you can touch everything, and it's, it's all here. And he goes, okay, I'm ready to go. I was expecting banking Dad brownie points. I was ready. And I said, why, why bud? You can, you can do anything you want. He goes, well, it's not real. It's not real. It has everything, but it doesn't do what it was supposed to do. It has everything there. But Gideon, my three-year-old, can recognize it and go, I'm out. That's great. You look wonderful. You don't do what you're intended to do. Love is the difference because without it, it doesn't matter what our vision and values are. How airtight they look. The cool font. I picked it out. There are no suggestions for fonts. There are suggestions for names of our church, but not for. It doesn't matter any of those things. If we speak in the tongues of men and angels, amazing. If you don't have love, clanging symbol. Oh, we're a prophetic people. We hear from God. We minister powerfully. You don't have love. Jesus goes, well, how do they know you are following me? Oh, I am, I, I am desperately... Um, I minister powerfully to the marginalized. They have my heart. I give myself over to suffering. Do you not have love? You're nothing. I'm not being harsh. 
It's there. Love is the difference. But let's not get nervous about somehow not having love and not messing up. Let's simply ask God about the reality of how his love for us and our love for others as an ethic permeates all of who we are and what we do. It's like olive oil spilled in the kitchen. Have you ever spilled olive oil? I'm still cleaning up olive oil from our kitchen that I spilled like eight years ago. You, you, you try to clean it up, but it has literally permeated everything. And you touch something, you're like, there it is. But that's... That's this ethic of love being the difference. It's sticky all over us, gets everywhere. There's no place it's not, right? So here's our final approach to the series in this last 10 or 15 minutes. Here's how we're going to close in these last few moments. Let's look at what we've declared over the last two months and ask how love is the difference permeates as an ethic. There's going to be so much more to preach, but I'm going to leave it. You're welcome. And we're going to figure out together in our great future in the Lord, walking forward together the depth and breadth of how this will continue to permeate, yes? So we started off two months ago by declaring something crucial, declaring something at the core of who we are, foundational. It's, it's what we called our belief statement. And this belief is, is the bedrock of everything that we do. It's the distillation, not of a whole statement of faith, but of the character of God that we see worked out through all of Scripture. And that belief statement is this, the power and presence of Jesus deeply transforms lives by gifting us intimacy with the Father and by freeing us from everything that holds us down and holds us back. That's the core. That's the core. God is a God who transforms us. And how is love the difference in this belief statement? Well, I would just submit to you first off that God's love is actually the difference because it started it all. God's love actually makes all the difference. Some of that notion is really familiar to us. John 3.16, it's behind me. You probably don't need it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love births the idea of us coming into relationship with him in the first place. Right off the top, God is a transforming God and God's love is the difference right away. But I want you to consider something else about God's love. God's love through his grace actually teaches us godliness. He transforms us. God's love through his grace teaches us godliness. Yes, grace actually, God employs it to teach us. Well, I thought grace was just the cool thing that makes me A-OK with God no matter what I do. No, that's not a biblical understanding of grace. Grace is what God bestows upon us so that we may enter into living a life worthy of the calling we have received. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus is a great book. It's also only three chapters long, so if you ever want to have that feeling during the day of, I read an entire book of the Bible today, just read Titus. Three chapters, knock it out. It's amazing. Paul writes to Titus in verse 11 of of, of chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Love it. Yes. Awesome. It teaches us, what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace teaches us. It teaches us. Teaches us to repent. Teaches us to be restored. Teaches us to live a godly life and empowers us to do so. So because God is the God who transforms us, his love has started that from the top. And God exclusively and only transforms us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, which 
which is why we express the belief that we do. And that's how God's love, firstly, is the difference. So this belief, we've said, causes in us a rallying cry, a rallying cry that emanates our deepest desire. And we've called this rallying cry our banner. If God is a transforming God and he only transforms us through his son, Jesus, then our vision, our banner statement is this, all of Jesus for everyone, all of Jesus for everyone. It can be our only response. So how is love the difference in this banner statement? Well, I think we only need to hearken back to what Jesus told his disciples in that heightened moment when he essentially said, love will be your calling card. Love will be your calling card. Come whatever circumstance, whatever season of life, whatever the dominant thinking of the age, persecution, soaring victory, crushing loss, let our calling card be the love of Jesus. That's what he said, as I have loved you, so love one another. The love that gives himself or herself up for one another. And in doing that, we can truly authentically reveal the undiluted Jesus, all of him, fully Savior and fully Lord, all the parts of Jesus, the great ones that I'm comfortable with, those parts of Jesus that go, yeah, for sure, I knew that, and then the other parts that make me go, I am totally undone and must submit to you as Lord. Love is the difference. This rallying cry, this banner statement has to be sort of taken up by all of us. Like we were lifting a banner. Everyone grabs a piece and just raises it like a rallying cry. And to do that, we need to covenant or promise certain things together. Hold together to certain things. Gently but clearly hold myself, hold you, you hold me together to certain things. And we've called these things our values. And how is love the difference in our values? How is love the difference permeating our values? And we're going to briefly, briefly, Go through each of the five values, and I know there's going to be lots left on the table, but for the sake of time, we're going to do it. Our values, remember, are in no particular order except for one, the first one, all of us for Jesus. It's the notion that every ounce of who I am is fully submitted to Jesus, all of us for Jesus. Where or how, you can clap for that, that's good, yeah. Where, where or how, Colleen is with me, I'm just going to preach right there. <laughs> All of, us for Jesus, all of us for Jesus, where or how am I holding back from fully submitting and fully loving Jesus? And how is love the difference there? How is love the difference? Well, I think Jesus answers that question pretty clearly for us when he's asked what the greatest commandment is. An expert in the law trying to kind of trip Jesus up, asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds very clearly in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Okay, cool, thanks. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Love is the difference because it's not what I feel. It's how I act and it's who I'm submitted to. With everything I yield to God, that's loving him. With everything I'm kind, patient, etc. to others, that's loving my neighbor. That's how love is the difference in all of us for Jesus. Another value we've described, we abide in God, we move in God. We abide in God, we move with God. This is the desire we have, the desperate desire for the presence of God. You know, my favorite definition of, of a local church is this. A local church is a gathering of people in a specific location where God is present and in the habit of doing extraordinary things in great power. 
A gathering of people in a specific location where God is present and in the habit of doing things in great power. How is love the difference here? You know, Moses said to God in Exodus 33, when the Israelites were about to move and go forth, Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. Why? Where God's presence is, his voice is there. And where God's voice is, he is speaking. And we're sure of two things. Firstly, when God speaks, he speaks in accordance with his word. And secondly, when he speaks, it's our response to obey. It's our response to obey. So that's how love is the difference. Because love is obeying God's voice. We abide in God. We move with God. And when he speaks, we obey. It's our desperate desire for his presence. Following along in our values, we always remember, as Matt preached, that we serve the God of the impossible. Jesus said, and I just love that Jesus said this, did not, did not I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God in John 11? What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He not only promises that, but he's committed something to you and me. He's committed, as 2 Corinthians tells us, the ministry of reconciliation to us, the partnership of joining in, of bringing others to knowing Jesus. So it's not just salvation that you and I receive. It's an invitation to partnership to bringing others to salvation. Now, why am I bringing that up with this value? How are we engaging the God of the impossible to see him do the impossible? How is love the difference? Well, I think it's in our role that we play to the people who don't know Jesus 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, an ambassador is an expert in two cultures. She's an expert in the culture from which she came. She's also an expert in the culture in which she has been placed as an ambassador. You and I are We are experts in our former citizenship. We can recognize our former citizenship right away. And what is our former citizenship according to Scripture? It was being separated from God. We have trafficked in the brokenness and the desolation and the destruction of the world. We recognize it instantly. We're experts in that citizenry. We're also newly citizens of heaven. We have a new citizenship a new citizenship that is placed in heaven in the kingdom of God. And so as ambassadors, our function is to see the the place where we are now and go, we have something to bring there. We have something to bring there. So love is the difference as we boldly step out in faith to actually do that. That's why we pray for healing. That's why we pray for relationships to be restored, for people to be restored. That's why we pray for what is broken to be made whole. That's why we sing, let heaven come. Because God is the God of the impossible. And the way we express love being the difference is we say, as an ambassador, I see what this citizenship brings to this broken place. And it speaks to our next value. We invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. You guys okay? Almost there. We invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. You know, when someone doesn't know Jesus, how do they live? 
They live like they don't know Jesus. Sometimes I think that really shocks us. I am simply appalled at what I just saw, what I just heard, what I just read, how they just acted. Don't be. Don't be. They don't know Jesus. Grace teaches us godliness. They have not entered into that grace. I'm not calling us better. I'm just simply saying what Ephesians 2 already tells us, that there is a spirit of disobedience at work in those who are disobeying, the ruler of the age, the kingdom of the air. It's a very real thing. So what we should not expect is an open, cordial invitation in a really nice scripted font asking us to come and share Jesus with someone. Because that's not the way the world is. It's the kingdom God saves us from. So as we invite others to join us in knowing Jesus, how is love the difference? I would say love isn't so much the difference here as it is our primary role in inviting others to Jesus. The role of loving. The role of loving. But isn't our role to point out left, right, and center how the world is off base and like where they're wrong and I'm really good at that and it's kind of my MO and where I kind of default and it's fun? No, it's not our role. It's not our role. Whose role is it? Jesus tells us. John 16, verse 8. He's speaking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So my role isn't to educate. My role isn't to illuminate, put people in their place. Actually, no, the Holy Spirit does that, and he's pretty good at it. He's pretty good at it. My only role is to love, and my only message is Jesus, is the gospel. When Romans, when Paul writes to the Romans, how will they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And you can hear him asking, how will they listen if they are not loved? How will they listen if they are not loved? Love is the difference. Lastly, a couple of weeks ago, we preached our final value. We are with and for one another. This is the reality simply that God has established a unique and wonderful unity for us to walk in as the church. And that not only does he intend that unity for us, but unity has to be fought for. Unity has to be guarded. And how am I guarding unity in this local church? And we, we discussed that the currency of unity, what makes it go is honor. The currency of unity is honor, and that's being gentle and patient and humble with one another, living in such a way that not only gives those things to others, but invites those things from others, giving and inviting honor. So how is love the difference here? Love, the choice of love, allows us to mutually submit to one another, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. Mutually submitting. Wait, does that mean everybody is everybody else's boss? No, that's the wrong understanding of submit. It wouldn't work, trust me. This submission speaks of regarding one another more highly than I regard myself. Prioritizing and preferring one another over ourselves. If honor is the currency of unity, then love is the fuel that powers honor. Love is the fuel that powers honor. These are the values that we hold to together to to take up the banner of that rallying cry. All of Jesus for everyone. And when we started the conversation around our ethic last week, how we interact with the world, remember we started with that, that sacrificial generosity. We get in order to give. And how is love the difference there? I just think it's simply in the depth 
of the sacrifice, of the hilarity, of the freedom, of the ease with which we can give. Why? Because the depth and the abundance of God's faithfulness will always, always go deeper and outdo the hilarity of our willingness to give. We cannot simply out-sacrifice God's abundance. So that's why we get in order to give. And love is the difference. Rachel, can I call you and the team up? Jesus and his disciples were in a heightened moment. They were in a, a moment of heightened context. And what Jesus chose to say in that moment was very significant. And he revealed and communicated something everlasting to them. And it was about them. It was about their calling card, their significant mark of identity. That his love displayed through them would be their mark. Who we are. How we see the world. The world we long to see. All of Jesus for everyone. This is a heightened moment for us. It's a significant season. It's a crucial time. 14 years in together as a local church. And in just a few moments, I'm going to hand back over to Matt, and, and, and we're going to go into a time of, of ministry. But first, I was wrestling with how to respond, but I think our response simply needs to be worshiping God for the revelation that he has freely given. Just to simply give all of our praise to him. To simply agree that while we may enumerate our ways... We want our ways to conform to his ways. We don't want our designs to be in lockstep with just us. We want them to be open-handed saying, this is our response to you, Lord. We agree on earth as it is in heaven. So can we stand and can we worship? Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your love that starts it all, Lord. The love that through your grace teaches us godliness. And as a church, Lord, with open hands, we say thank you for showing us, sharpening, specifying who we are. And Lord, our heart's cry is all of Jesus for everyone. And let your love displayed through us be the mark that we are yours and let it permeate everything that we do thank you lord that you love us i believe right now the lord is by his spirit revealing to hearts across this room that he loves you he sees you he's never gone away from you he's never left you he has loved you with an everlasting love that doesn't change. Lord, would your love be what we display to the world? That they would so be drawn and say, surely God is among them. Lord, where arguments fall away and where civility gets trampled and our mechanisms of the world fall short, would you, Holy Spirit, Convict the world of sin and show 
the one true way to the Father, that is Jesus. And may you employ our love, God. Would you employ our love to shine the light that says Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Paying the price for every sin that separates us. Rising again to give us every victory, every right to be known by you and to know you forever, ever, evermore. To have all manner of salvation and restoration and healing and wholeness available now in this moment. Let heaven come. We worship you. We worship you. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.